0: Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News
1: Report. We must phase out coal, oil and gas in a fair and equitable way and massively boost renewables.
2: World nations grapple with climate change at UN General Assembly.
0: We will use our energy dominance to deny our enemies
2: revenue. DeSantis vows to unleash fossil fuels while downplaying climate change.
3: This is not about the politics. This is about doing what's right for the country in the long term.
2: Conservative UK Prime Minister weakens Britain's climate policies. Plus, President Biden launches the first ever American Climate Corps. All of those
0: launches and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis and snarky comment. The future is not fixed. Right. It's broken. We're kind of hoping you guys might help fix it. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Tessie Doyen, summer is wrapping up here in the U.S. A long, cruel summer. It's just getting started in Australia, but I understand things are not looking good down under already.
2: No, unfortunately, Australia is dealing with a scorcher. A spring heat wave is shattering records with temperatures 20 to 25 degrees hotter than average and putting dozens of runners in the Sydney Marathon in the hospital for heat exhaustion this week. In politics, in a Texas oil field on Wednesday, Republican 2024 presidential candidate and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis downplayed climate change in unveiling his energy agenda, vowing to withdraw the United States from global climate pacts and the U.S. commitment to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions, expand extraction of fossil fuels on the public's lands and slash federal regulations on pollution and conservation to boost domestic fossil fuel He did that in the middle of an oil field. Yep. DeSantis also said that as president, he'd bring gas prices down to $2 a gallon, (laughs) a difficult prospect given that oil prices are set on the global market. In international diplomacy, at the United Nations General Assembly underway in New York, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned that current government actions to cut dangerous climate warming emissions are, quote, falling abysmally short, even as the world just had a rash of deadly extreme weather disasters and its hottest summer on record. Guterres called on nations to enact key steps, like ending billions in annual subsidies for fossil fuels, implementing a price on carbon, and assisting developing countries with adaptation and mitigation projects. Guterres targeted wealthy, high-emitting countries and their obligations to address the crisis they created.
1: G20 countries are responsible for 80% of greenhouse emissions. They must lead. They must break their addiction to fossil fuels, to stand a fighting chance of limiting global temperature rise, We must phase out coal, oil, and gas in a fair and equitable way and massively boost renewables.
0: Yeah, but here was my favorite comment from Guterres. Humanity has opened the gates of hell. I think he's got it about right.
2: President Biden addressed the U.N. on Tuesday, focusing on deadly extreme weather disasters around the world and highlighted the surge in historic U.S. climate actions under his administration. From new funding to assist developing countries to adapt to climate impacts and transition to new energy and new policies under the Democrats' landmark climate law, the Inflation Reduction Act.
4: Last year, I signed in the law in the United States the largest investment ever anywhere in the history of the world. To combat the climate crisis and help move the global economy toward a clean energy future we need more investment from public and private sector alike especially in places that have contributed so little to global emissions but face some of the worst effects climate change.
2: In the UK, Conservative Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who was not at the UN summit this week, backtracked on the UK's successful climate policies. He rolled back a 2030 ban on gas and diesel cars to 2035 mm. and rolled back upgrading energy efficiency projects and transitioning to electric heat pumps. UK climate scientists said the rollback puts the country's legally binding 2050 net zero target in jeopardy, and energy experts said it was will prolong the UK's dependence on fossil fuels and damage its growing clean energy industry. What the hell
0: is he thinking?
2: That's an excellent question. Thank you. And finally, good news for America. President Biden used his executive authority to create the first ever American Climate Corps, a paid green jobs training and service program for young adults modeled after the Depression-era Civilian Conservation Corps. A key goal of youth climate campaigners, the Climate Corps will employ more than 20,000 young adults to build projects in clean energy, conservation, and climate resilience, like restoring coastal wetlands, wildfire prevention, and building out solar and wind projects.
0: Very, very cool. Yes. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman.
2: And I'm Desi Doyen. And
0: this has been your Green News Report.
3: And it just might be- the prettiest thing you'll ever see. Oh, it's a
5: new day.
0: Oh, baby, it's a new day. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate.
4: From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. If we... And now I mean the relatively conscious whites and the relatively conscious blacks who must like lovers insist on, or create the consciousness of the others. Do not falter in our duty. Now we may be able handful that we are to end the racial nightmare and achieve our country and change the history of the world those powerful words from james baldwin in the fire next time represent the courageous way baldwin thought wrote and spoke throughout his career i often quote him on this show and have always found him to be profoundly spiritual and so when a book titled the gospel according to james baldwin gets published it's a safe bet we're going to want to talk about it on state of belief and so Author Greg Garrett will be with us in just a minute.
6: Vice President Harris spoke to a a women's convention of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and she was questioning DeSantis' state standards that taught about slavery in ways that somehow saying that there was some benefit for people who were enslaved.
4: Religion plays a role in so many of the events that shape our lives, whether we know it or not. Religion news service journalist, Adele Banks and Jack Jenkins are at the forefront of covering those stories, and we'll get a roundup of news you might have missed during the summer, as well as look ahead to what's breaking this fall. We are growing State of Belief, building on our 17-year history by partnering with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation State of Belief podcast I want to make sure you are subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. It would really help to have you subscribe and to tell people you're close to about the conversation you are hearing. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show going is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest, James Baldwin was a prolific American novelist, essayist, and social critic known for his profound insights into the complexities of race, identity, and sexuality in America. His groundbreaking works, including Go Tell It on the Mountain and The Fire Next Time, challenged societal norms and played a pivotal role in advancing the civil rights movement. Now, a book celebrating James Baldwin as a prophet of humanity has just appeared. The title is The Gospel According to James Baldwin. And the author brings a depth of expertise to this project. The author of over 30 books, Greg Garrett, is a longtime professor at Baylor University and is canon theologian for the American
1: Cathedral
4: of the Holy Trinity in Paris. Professor Garrett, welcome to State of Belief.
1: Paul, thank you so much. It's a joy to be with you today.
4: So, Professor Garrett, could you give us an overview of the life of James Baldwin for our listeners who may not be as familiar with who he was and the times he lived in uh, what where did he grow up um, and what was the trajectory of his career?
1: Yeah I mean thank you so much for asking that. I, I wrote this book for people who love Baldwin and people who don't love him yet. Um, and, and so that's one of the essential things is that people need to understand who he is and how important he is. And one of the things that I talk about uh, from the very outset, uh, during much of the sort of response to Baldwin and the critical response to, them, to him, he, he's been talked about as a great black writer or a black gay you know writer. And both of those things are reductive. He is very simply one of the greatest American writers in our history. And uh, so 60 years ago this week, uh, his book, The Fire Next Time, was uh, atop the New York Times bestseller list. It was on the bestseller uh, list for 41 weeks. And so how did he get from where he started to to that place of prominence where he can be rightfully thought of as one of our greatest writers and thinkers? Um, he was born in um, Harlem in the 1920s. He was the eldest of a number of siblings. Um, his stepfather was a cruel, hard man who, as Baldwin says to his nephew in The Fire Next Time, made the mistake of believing what white people said about him. Mm. And he, he was broken by life and tried to break other things around him. Um, that, that whole, you know, broken people break other things. So from his early life, he was surrounded by poverty and squalor and racial oppression. But he also realized early on that he was smart. And he had a, a teacher, a white teacher, Orilla Bill Miller, who um, encouraged him to write, uh, took him to Broadway shows and movies. Um, it is because of Bill Miller, he says, that I never really learned to hate white people. And he also received the encouragement of other black artists and black writers. And um, so after some time in the black church where he had been a really successful Preacher, and as he says in an open letter to Desmond Tutu towards the end of his life, Baldwin's life, uh, some people say I never stopped being a preacher, and I'm pretty sure that they're right. Um,
4: <laughs> he, he That's practiced. a great quote. I mean, hence yeah. the book title, "Gospel According to uh, yeah. James Baldwin." That's fantastic.
1: Where you know, in in uh, seminary, my homiletics professor was always asking us, "Where is the good news in this?" And that actually is, I mean, that's the controlling idea behind this book. Where's the good news in what Baldwin has to tell us about our humanity, about the possibilities? So he he arrived in Paris with, I think, $42 to his name. Um, and he arrived there, as many American artists, writers, musicians have over the years, white, black, uh, male, female. He uh, he lived in, in sort of abject poverty for a while, uh, borrowing money, doing odd jobs trying to write, trying to finish his first novel, the, the book, Go Tell It on the Mountain. But he also discovered the freedom there that came from being an American citizen. And uh, he writes um, in Notes of a Native Son that what made a difference in Paris was the color of his passport. Uh, the color of his skin had not changed, but the color of his passport set him apart. And so he was aware that there was, you know, it. Paris has its own varieties of injustice. But the French like to think that they are colorblind. And as Richard Wright, one of Baldwin's mentors said, in Paris, I'm treated as a human being. Hmm. So for Baldwin to come and to have the freedom to be a writer, um, it's not something that there was latitude for him where he was um, in Harlem or even in New York City, but the distance that he gained allowed him to kind of look and reflect um, and, and also to see, as I said about Paris, you know, that these are, are universal problems. Um, hmm. Racism, injustice, uh, xenophobia, uh, there's plenty of that in France. So it's not unique to America, although we have our unique permutations um, that certainly shaped him and um, that he had to escape. So when I began uh, thinking about Baldwin, it was almost certainly I thought about writing this book in a cafe in Paris. Hmm. Um and uh, I have been going to Paris for ten years and spending uh, six to eight weeks a year there, which adds up. You know, that's that is a lot of uh, a lot of months in the Tower of the American Cathedral in mm-hmm. Paris. And um, I wanted to follow Baldwin around because not only had he taken such a hold on my heart and on my mind, but I had begun to think of him in the way that, as an Episcopalian, we think about our saints. Uh, we want to walk in their footsteps. You know. Uh, and that there is something sacred um, however you understand that term about the places that they have been and the things that they have touched you know the tables at the cafes where they have sat
4: Mm.
1: and um so following baldwin around in paris for a few years while i was reading him was an essential part of the writing of this book and then following him to switzerland where he had the breakthrough that allowed him to finish go tell it on the mountain and um in a, a long early interview with Studs Terkel, he talked about how that winter, I think it's 1951, he was in the village of Lucerbad in the Swiss Alps. Uh, he was there with his lover Lucienne, whose family had a chalet. Uh, chalet, I guess that's a thing, in in the Alps. And uh, he would, you know, he would uh, write and drink and listen to uh, Bessie Smith uh, singing the blues. And what he told Studs Terkel is there and that far away from home, where he was the only, literally the only black person those villagers had ever seen. Hmm. He writes about in a later essay. That distance and his reconnection with the idiom of the blues and with the language that he grew up with, grew up in, uh, allowed him to finish that book. And also to make some sort of essential understandings about the differences in racism in Europe and in America. Mm-hmm. So one of the, the last essays in um, Notes from a Native Son is called Stranger in the Village. And it is the essay that he wrote after several trips to Lukarbad, you know, um, being followed around by the children mm. uh, who you know, pointed at him and wanted to touch his hair and, and, and rub his skin. And, you know, he said, eventually, I'm going to go back down the mountain. They don't have to accommodate me. I can be this, you know, circus uh exhibit to them. But we do not have that luxury in America. In America, we are family. I mean, literally, family. Mm-hmm. And we can't walk away from each other. We can't, you know, push one of uh one group or or the other into the sea. We're going to have to learn to live with each other. And as he says to his nephew in the fire next time, genuinely love each other because uh, Mm. that is our only way out of our chains. So in the book, I I wanted to include my journey to that village because first it was terrifying. um, And there's some nice dramatic interest in that because I'm really afraid of heights. Um, (laughs) And also because I felt that even though... um, even though Baldwin was not an outdoorsy kind of person. And, you know, when I go to these Swiss mountains, I'm gonna walk around some, you stand there and you, you touch the building where he lived and worked. Um, you listen to the sound of the Catholic church bells tolling through the village. And I, I'm writing mm-hmm. a piece on this right now because, you know, Baldwin was, you know, he left the church, but the church never left him. And I just think mm-hmm. of him sitting there and hearing that, that bell tolling the hours or calling people to worship. And he is outside of it, but he is also permeated mm. by it. Mm. So that, that experience was so central to the writing of this book. And it's a, that village is a place I'm going to go to write for the rest of my life. Mm. Mr. Baldwin had some, some really good ideas.
4: Uh, James Baldwin was a... Uh, A successful writer, as you said, he was on the top of the New York Times uh, bestseller list. He was on the cover of Time magazine. However, he was a controversial figure. Uh, You don't speak the kind of truth with the power that he spoke it in such a convincing way without gaining some uh, adversaries. And uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about the struggles that he faced uh, throughout his life. Uh, as um, people kind of took him on. I mean, he had a, a famous debate with uh, Buckley, I think, in oh, Cambridge. Yes. You know, we we talk about the saint and how you know wonderful it was, and you know, if we know anything about saints, is that generally it's not all like fun and games. You know, what I mean, no, like, there's, 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 there's going to be some suffering. Talk a little bit about how he was understood by the American public and what he had to kind of go through as his um, star rose
1: yeah that's I mean that is such an interesting thing to to think about um there were times in his life when people of every spectrum were angry at him um mm. so there there were white people who felt that he was pushing too hard or telling too much truth um one of the the tropes that's introduced in uh, the fire next time, that uh, echoes throughout his work is the idea that the American people would prefer to be ignorant. And that way they can be innocent. Uh, and so, you know, it one of the reasons this book is so important, it matters so much is that we are in a new phase of that, mm. right? So, you know, people, uh, I live here in Texas, um, and uh, I've been in a number of states uh, traveling over the last couple of years, where the legislatures have said, you know, we don't want we don't want to offend any of our students by which they mean the our white students who might be exposed to the history of what their grandparents or great-grandparents may have done um so by saying just that that simple truth that we have to tell the truth about our history Mm -hmm. uh, Baldwin was was automatically guaranteeing that there would be a group of people who would be upset uh because there there are lots of ways that we've tried to mythologize or to romanticize uh, the whole lost cause myth, but um, Baldwin was controversial in some white circles because of that uh, desire to tell the truth about our history and his desire to witness to the mm-hmm. suffering that he saw uh, in Harlem, uh, in Watts, uh, in various places in the South. He made, uh, he you know, I'm terrified of heights. James Baldwin was terrified of the South, and yet mm-hmm. he went. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on in his life, there were plenty of uh, black writers, thinkers, um, activists who didn't feel like he was uh, hard enough, willing to to go far enough. Um, and so there were there were later writers who said, you know, what is all this love stuff, mm. you know, and, uh, in, in a very real sense, although there were some some very obvious differences between Dr. King and, and Baldwin, there was there was also real affection and, and uh, appreciation there. And it seems to me that Baldwin held tight to that um, that view of the primacy of love when other people were saying hate might be the the way forward.
4: Well, it's interesting. There was a moment that you described in the book that I I had not known about, which was it was an interaction where in one of his essays he had talked about something about the church and something and 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 people wanted King to be to condemn it. Um, and instead, okay. King said, no, 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 I don't condemn that at all, actually. Like, that's really an important witness, I think. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, 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 no, I remember being, being impressed both with Baldwin for saying the thing he needed to say and also for King for not shying away from hearing that truth that he yeah. probably clearly agreed with in some ways. What, what was that?
1: Well, and you know, just to sort of sketch out that relationship a tiny bit more, uh, I came back to faith in the Black church. And and so I, I know a whole lot more about the Black church than I did growing up Southern Baptist in a very, very white church. Um, and in many Black churches, there's uh, a lot of discomfort around LGBTQ issues. Mm. So Dr. King looked at Baldwin, admired him as a writer, was nervous about his sexuality. It's, it's one of the reasons he was sidelined in the 1963 March on Washington along with mm-hmm. Mayor Rustin you know who right. planned the right. planned March right but um during my archival research I actually found that um and I was delighted it was it was a letter from Martin Luther King's lawyer to James Baldwin's agent so this is all back channels right it feels like you know diplomacy and people meeting in dark alleys but um what the lawyer wanted to transmit and and have uh, Baldwin understand is that people were asking Dr. King if the fire next time was unchristian. Mm. And uh, King's response was on the contrary. Uh, not only is it one of the greatest statements of of where we are on race and where we should be, um, but I, I consider it to be absolutely Christian. Mm. Um, and um, that, that affirmation, I'm sure, would have been a powerful thing. Um, You know, particularly because, as we said, there was pushback against Baldwin from one quarter or another, you know, throughout his life.
4: Right. Right. Um, Talk to me a little bit about like, you know, he he had this place. Talk to me a little bit about this. It's one of the most famous and it's 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 on the Internet a lot. This kind of interaction between him and Buckley, uh, which felt like a very much of like the you know, it's it's built, you know, the the meeting of the Titans, you know, um, on the, in this corner, in this corner. Like, how do you understand that meeting, which I guess was at the debating society in Cambridge,
1: if I'm not mistaken. The the Cambridge union, uh, I think it was 1965. And uh, just for your listeners, I want you to know um, Nicholas Bucola, B-U-C-C-O-L-A has written a fantastic, it's, it's sort of a twin intellectual biography of, of Baldwin and Buckley. Mm. Uh, And I refer to it Mm. in my book, by my book. And I interviewed Nick, uh for my book um baldwin was incredibly articulate um clearly very smart uh, buckley the the same and so there was this idea that you know let's let's put them together in this sort of you know um uh i don't know elon Musk must kind of cage match oh. sort of thing um let's let's take these two kind of towering intellects and and put them in a room and let's let's see what happens here and uh if your listeners have watched this um basically what they see is baldwin mopping up the floor with mr buckley um the standing ovation that baldwin receives clearly startles him um hmm. i i have a very good friend um antony reddy who is the first professor of black theology at oxford hmm. and for for some years we have talked about what what it's like to go into the heart of the Empire Mm. and try and do justice work because one of the things that Baldwin understood King has a, a similar sort of statement but the problem in changing the status quo is that the people who occupy the the high positions in the status quo don't want them to be changed and here he is walking into one of the two sort of hearts of the British Empire uh Cambridge and Oxford to tell these hard truths and he was heard you know, mm. uh, and, and Baldwin is facile. He's smart, um, but the the truth, um, and capital T truth, that radiates out of what Baldwin says and out of his own uh, use of his lived experience, clearly resonated with them. Um, I do a lot of this kind of work in churches and for church organizations, where I walk in and talk to people who look like us about why people who look like us should care about race, mm. and for many of those conversations it's it's that first place of recognition so you look at all those masters of the universe you know in the cambridge union who are like yes this is true Hmm. i always wonder what happened next and my fear is that probably nothing did
4: Mm -hmm. yeah right i mean i think that you know that's i think uh you can actually make a categorical statement <laughs> that nothing did, uh, at least for a while and, uh, and is still needing to happen. I, I want to close with, um, you know, just the, for, for me, uh, the idea of achieving our country, which is part of his, uh, you know, great, uh, line, um, from the fire next time. And the title of a book of my cousin, Richard Rorty, uh, achieving our country and, and mm-hmm. such a, you know, it it's this idea that um this is possible and that yep. it has to happen and um and so i think uh what you what you're describing here is like that movement towards it and it's tortured and unfortunately people who are um you know the 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 the, the tension is that those who are um being um, hurt right now are not as um you know are 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 being asked to sustain that hurt as we move forward yes. At, yes. in at this ever slow pace whether on racial issues or lgbtq issues but if we can continue to move forward um i think that's so important and i love that you you know you part of what the book emphasizes is the hope that uh, baldwin can offer us and that that perhaps that's really part of the gospel of James Baldwin is that with all the this the the suffering and but there is love and there is a movement and uh and so I really appreciate uh you being with me here on state of belief and and I I encourage everyone to check out this book if you've read Baldwin and you love Baldwin this is a great book to read uh, the gospel according to James Baldwin and if you haven't read Baldwin yet but you want to be introduced to it The Gospel According to James Baldwin is a great introduction. And I won't say especially, well, maybe I will say, especially if you're coming out of a faith tradition and you're trying to uh, figure out a way to understand a a writer who maybe isn't part of the canon of faith writers traditionally, but should be. Dr. Greg Garrett is a renowned American author, professor, and cultural critic celebrated for his insightful exploration of faith, culture, and literature. With a career spanning multiple genres, he has penned thought-provoking books such as The Prodigal and Entertaining Judgment, offering unique perspectives on spirituality and contemporary society. Greg is a professor at Baylor University and is canon theologian for the American Cathedral of Holy Trinity in Paris. Uh, Professor Garrett, thank you so much for joining me here on State of Belief today.
1: Paul, you're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
4: We'll take another break now and be back with religion journalists, Jack Jenkins and Adele Banks. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation podcast. Please go to stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief where religion and democracy meet. State of Belief Radio,
0: twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network.
7: 911, what's your emergency?
0: America's
4: healthcare system is broken and people are dying.
7: Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code WAC. What challenges do those with disabilities face when it comes to accessing quality health care? To find out, we spoke to Angela Gardner, a disability rights advocate who lives in the Los Angeles area. With COVID there's a new group of people that have long term disabling conditions with long COVID. So there's just this concern, you know, in the disability community that we've totally been left out of all the policy decisions that our elected officials have been making since, you know, they decided to end the COVID emergency and A lot of people with disabilities feel abandoned, that, you know, their needs weren't taken into account. So what would they have liked to have happened? Did they want the government to extend like the public health emergency and the, you know, not dropping people from Medi-Cal or Medicaid. Right. And the, you know, the safety protocols in public places and especially workplaces, wearing masks, having gloves, having sanitizers, uh, those kinds of things that keep people feeling protected from, uh, you know, possibly getting infected. Get the full Code WAC story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code WAC wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, Stay
5: healthy. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about.
0: Carlos, that was rocky. I was going to make espresso. And picked by Juan Valdez. Coffee with Carlos. Good to the last drop. Mm-hmm.
5: Hola, Carlos. Muy buenos días. Uh, your partner, I was just watching the rom-com uh, street market fair festival montage with Kim Jong-un and Putin. Yeah. <laughs> I can't see me killing nobody but you. You can tell... We were walking together. Those <laughs> top, I was like, you know, I could have you killed. You know, I could have you killed. <laughs> you, you complete me. I say it here. I think it here. You say it there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, hey, we already sported the sports, by the way. We say, hate to do that without you. But uh, Aaron. Force name, Jody? Aaron, Rogers. Rogers. Aaron Rodgers. Yes, he lasted uh, less than a Scaramucci, uh, apparently. Uh, Aaron Rodgers lasted
0: less than a Scaramucci. I actually, yeah, out. Yeah.
5: yeah. Um, no, I thought, I, I, well, because we were saying, I guess it's, they're saying it's the artificial turf or whatever, which I feel bad.
0: That's it's not just, insane. MetLife Field.
5: I two think... years ago, 49ers, first two weeks, four injuries. Bosa, out. Yeah. Get rid of turf. Yeah. Yep. Leonel Messi will not play on turf. Yeah, well, we were t- talking about him being an anti-vax. Yeah. Yes, it has nothing to do with that right it's not karma like people were saying and yada 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 it's, it's an unfortunate incident and now as i tweeted he has to become mr biagi and zach wilson is his daniel son and he's got to get it done he's yeah. got to do the crane finish out the season but that's sport I the sports i'm a 49er fan I'm, I'm good we won we beat pittsburgh 30 to 7. congratulations yay congrats um i uh, i've got to send you the video of the uh, guy assaulting not assaulting He's getting his picture taken with RFK Jr. and he's holding faraway dog. He's holding a little poodle, and, oh he's, and he's like, "My dog, the rabies vaccine gave him autism. Can you help?" Oh, it was hilarious. It was. He said, "I think RFK, believe me." Trolling. The he RFK was trolling He face. was trolling RFK Jr. It was hilarious. Yeah. Find the Stephanie Miller show every Monday through Friday at nine to noon Eastern, six to nine Pacific. Right here on Progressive
8: Voices. Here's a clip from Tarabuster. Right wingers, do they even pretend? to represent the people. I mean, they're talking about shutting down the government. Everything that they do sucks. Everything they do hurts the American people. When Matt Getz is like, Mr. Speaker, you are not in compliance with the agreement. The whole thing is a clown show being played out, not for us. It's not like they're fighting for something That's going to help the American people. They're not fighting for universal health care or student loan debt or lowering drug prices or infrastructure week. They're not doing shit for anybody except their petty, little, tiny, personal ambition. Tarabuster is recorded live every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at the Tarabuster Facebook and YouTube channels. We stick together. We win.
0: You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network.
4: Welcome back to State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Rev. Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. So what did we miss in religion news and what's likely to make headlines in the months ahead? I'm joined by veteran religion news service journalists and award winning journalists, I might add, Adele Banks and Jack Jenkins. Thank you so much for being back on the show.
3: Thanks so much for Thank having you.
4: us. Listen, you guys wrote some great pieces this summer, and it. I want to do a little bit of a review because I think a lot of times people are like, "Okay, I'm going to try to disconnect," and but these pieces deserve to be read. And Adele, I want to start with yours. I loved your piece talking about the women of the on the March on Washington, and you went back and interviewed so many cool women many of whose stories were never told and also gave a context about like women's voices kind of not being heard at the at the March on Washington 60 years ago. Tell me about that story and, and tell our, our our listeners about like kind of the emotion of that story.
6: Thank you for asking about that, Paul. I appreciate it. And thanks for having Jack and me again. We appreciate that, too um so i will say that it was january that i decided that i wanted to write this story i i knew that the march on washington's 60th anniversary was coming up and i wondered how to do it differently uh on the 50th anniversary i will back up and just give that context there were actually two commemorations one on the actual day and one uh that was truly 50 years before Uh, 50 years after, excuse me. And then there was another one like on the weekend. And so I was able to go to, I think it was the weekend one and do video footage and work with an intern. And we had like 10 different voices, different people in in a package of stories uh, at that time. So this time around, I thought, well, let's focus on the women, because as you said, it's an interesting, this time around, there's been big attention for the fact that there were not a lot of women voices. Um, in some cases, they barely said a word or they sang a song, which is important, but they didn't get to have the major speeches that um, the the men did that day. And I understand from one of my uh, sources who I quoted in the top of the story you're referring to, Reverend Barbara Williams Skinner, that there was still some, you know, anger and angst about that many years later for the women who had been behind the scenes, but didn't get to be in the front on that very special day. So I did some searching for some people. Um, I happened to interview um, Bishop Vashtime McKenzie, who is now the head of the National Council of Churches. Uh, I think I interviewed her because she had just gotten that role. And Somehow in that interview, she happened to mention that she had been at the March in Washington. And so I said, well, I'm definitely going to circle back to you about that. And she remembered how hot it was. She remembered wearing uh, uh, ankle socks and Mary Jane's shoes.
4: (laughs) That was a very funny part of the story. She was like, you you showed up like correct, dressed correct. Like everyone was dressed correct, even if it was really hot
6: right exactly exactly but she also was helping her family that was uh, is in the uh, afro american uh, black newspaper business collect information that day and mm-hmm. was able to help them figure out who was there and who they should report on which is kind of cool as a journalist hearing uh, one of my sources talking about that so that was a uh, one example. And then there were a couple of others that I was able to find as well. There's a woman who had been involved in King's Birmingham mm-hmm. jail letter, uh, Willie Pearl Mackie King, who also was involved in the planning of the march. And so she was able to talk about that and how shocked she was when she heard King's speech be different than the words that she typed up numerous times as they'd gone over drafts as a group. So that was interesting, and then yeah, after-
4: I I loved that. It was so it was so interesting to hear someone who was really behind the scenes, and it sounded so much like kind of every event that anybody's you're not you know you're not doing the script, you're not doing the script. You know,
6: right. <laughs> we all and did so much, much work. Seemed. And you know, Mahalia Jackson is credited for saying, "Tell them, tell them about the dream, Martin." So that's another example of a woman who had a role that wasn't as prominent uh, to this day, but that was part of why we ended up hearing those those words. And then the Mm -hmm. last person um, was someone else I learned about named Sandra Sandy Hassan, and she was a student who was a marshal at the march, and she was there when Malcolm X came by with his entourage, so she got to hear him talking to the press and before he moved along to the next part of uh, the the National Mall for the rest of the event. Um, so I was just pleased that they were able to talk about women who had some connections to faith, who were involved six years ago, still remembered it and could talk to me about it.
4: It's just it's a really uh, it was a great example of finding the story. Uh, that hadn't been told and uh, letting us know. I mean, I just I loved it. And it was it's an important event for us to commemorate and even more beautiful to know a little bit more of the nuance of that day and also like, you know, some of the emotion that I I had never actually heard those stories or even the emotion around women. It's obvious it makes sense. Um, but but it was just really, really helpful. It's a great example of the role of journalism tell stories that will change the way we perceive an event and 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 widen it and illuminate so thank you for that that was that was great jack one of your stories that i really was intrigued by was um about pope francis and him actually addressing some of the catholic uh, agita in uh, america and um and and how his words were received and like what what impact does a pope have on actual on the-ground Catholic politics, which are so volatile right now
3: mm-hmm. yeah, no, there was this uh, interesting moment that occurred um earlier this year while the Pope was visiting Portugal. He was actually hanging out with a group of Portuguese Portuguese Jesuits where apparently one of the Jesuits mentioned that he had done a, you know, kind of a sabbatical in the United States and that, Um, he had had people come up to him and kind of complain about the Pope and he was expressing concern about that and the Pope in his response kind of uh, discussed what he referred to as this kind of like stream of Catholicism in the United States um, that he kind of uh, characterized as kind of backward as well as like, you know, he warned against instances where ideologies replace faith. He re- used the word reactionary and it was like this interesting moment that kind of elicited a response from kind of the more right-wing elements um, here of Catholicism here in the United States. And I should note up front that Pope Francis like is actually very popular among Catholics in the United States. He has like an 83% approval rating as of like a year um, or two ago from Pew. But there is this very particular strain that has been very vocal in either directly criticizing the Pope or um, or in some instances more kind of being on the opposite end of his message. And so we kind of talked about some of those groups, you know, some of that is like, say, Raymond Arroyo at Eternal Word Television Network, which was this, you know, is actually a very large Catholic media enterprise that used to kind of be more specific religious programming, and more recently kind of got into the news space. And Raymond has kind of become this talking head on that program, who also very often moons, moonlights on Fox News, and during one of his Fox News segments, he actually mocked a uh, Vatican official who got COVID despite being boosted. Again, kind of leaning into this anti-vaccine sentiment. While Pope Francis had actually been very pro COVID nineteen vaccines, you know, characterizing them as an act of love. Um, And you know, more specifically, you know, Pope Francis also kind of mentioned the idea of of potentially clerics, uh, prelates here in the United States who might be on the opposite end of, you know, of him when it comes to ideology and theology. And the name that, you know, kind of has come up a lot here in the United States is Bishop Joseph Strickland, who's caught a lot of flack um, over the last couple of years for a variety of reasons, you know, everything from kind of undermining his fellow bishops, you know, kind of promoting um, priests who have defied their bishops for refusing to get vaccinated, to he actually had was one of the prayers at the Jericho March, which which was an event that led up to the January January 6th insurrection. Um, and I should note there's been a little development on that. There was some reporting um, and some rumors that, that, that Pope Francis actually met in Rome with some people who uh, and, and discussed the idea of potentially asking Bishop Strickland to resign, given the myriad of controversies he's had. And we do know that his diocese is the su- subject of Vatican investigation right now. We know that he was approached by a Vatican official last year. Um, but Strickland told me um, that he, if he were asked to resign, that he would not do so voluntarily, setting up kind of this, you know, uh, potential fight with the Holy See. So that's kind of a, a good little glimpse at, you know, Strickland is a hero to a lot of these for, more far-right and right-wing Catholics in the United States that does seem to, have uh, at some point, Irk, um, or at least gotten the attention of Pope Francis over in Rome.
4: Were there any stories you wanted to tell that you saw that you didn't get a chance to tell, but that still feel important in this moment? Um, that come out of the last, say, three or four months that you 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 see continuing to develop.
3: Well, I, I can name at least one. It's 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 a story that I think is interesting because it's kind of a it's not a story. So what I mean by that is that you know, watching the um, the 2024 Republican presidential candidates, right? Um, we have seen uh, some, you know, dialogue and appeals to faith. Mike Pence does it pretty regularly. Um, we've seen some of the other candidates also um, reference faith in public appearances. But one of the ones that's, that's most interesting to me is that um, you have Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who was, you know, touted to be like the great uh, the, the great you know, rival to Trump leading into this, and that has proven to be untrue, and uh, at least in polling so far throughout his campaign. But another odd thing about it is that he is Catholic and that he um, was asked about that uh, early on in the campaign while appearing on a evangelical Christian um, network And actually kind of while he didn't you know, deny that he is Catholic, he kind of instead when asked about it, you know, kind of referred to Catholic um, traditions as, as I think he might have used the word neat. Someone can back check me on exactly the word he said. It was something that was not overwhelmingly um, enthusiastic and pivoted immediately to language that you would more often find in an evangelical context, talking about the um, importance of a personal relationship with a faith and with Christ. And it's been interesting to kind of see him throughout his campaign so far. Are, you know, I just saw him speak last week here in D.C. Um, to an evangelical Christian group in which he was, again, kind of leaning more heavily into more uh, evangelical Christian um, rhetoric and theology than you might have find it found in a more traditional Catholic space. And I think there's a yeah. lot to unpack about why he might be doing that, you know, what the um, game plan is there, um, whether it'll work. But uh, just the, the the idea of a Catholic candidate. Um, really kind of spending more time in in evangelical spaces and using evangelical style rhetoric than, he, than you might expect. And with only, to my um, estimation so far, he had one tweet where he showed that he had met with a prominent Catholic bishop. And outside of that, I haven't seen him lean too heavily into that space, which seems interesting and peculiar to me.
4: Yeah, well, that says a lot about the uh... – Kind of the the way I think the perhaps the Republican field feels like they have to navigate religion is that, you know, if you're not doing evangelical Christianity, you're not doing religion correctly for the primary. Mm. Um, and it would be if you were ever to become the candidate. Um it would be interesting to see how he would navigate that if he were to um, make it to a general election. Yeah, Adele, what, what were, were there any stories that you saw building up this summer that you feel like might still have salience in this fall?
6: Yes, um, the one related to the Southern Baptist Convention and specifically its decisions about women in ministry, um, because there were a number of things that came to the floor of their meeting in June. My colleague, Bob I was there in person covering it, and I covered it from afar. And they um, they made a step to amend their constitution to state that only men can be pastors. That's going to require a second vote in June uh, next year. But they also expelled some churches, including the church that Rick Warren started, Saddleback, uh, for, because they had women pastors. And the question is, what happens next? like will, first of all, everything that happens at the Southern Baptist Convention often trickles down to the state level. And there was one meeting, which many people probably missed uh, uh, this summer with the Baptist General Convention of Texas, which is the more progressive of the two state Baptist conventions in Texas that relate to Southern Baptists. And they affirmed women in ministerial and leadership roles, quote unquote, but they did not specifically use the word pastors as far as who they were affirming, which made the organization Baptist Women in Ministry uh, disappointed because they wanted more clarity. Um, hmm. So what I'm trying to say is that there are questions looming about what's gonna happen to women in ministry who are in churches connected to the Southern Baptists. And there's also a dimension of this related to predominantly black churches, many of which are aligned with more than one Baptist denomination. Some are historic ba- Black Baptist denominations, some are the Southern Baptist Convention, and one is. And so uh, there the Black ministers have met with the president of the Southern Baptist Convention to express their concern about how this is gonna affect the women in ministry in their churches. So there's lots kind of brewing some of it's going to happen over the next few months as the state conventions meet and say something about this topic and then of course next June we'll see more. So I feel like that's an ongoing story that will merit being uh, having tabs kept on
4: yeah thank you that's super interesting and you know I think a adjacent uh, issue that I saw this summer, was all the seminary, Southern Baptist seminary presidents making a statement about critical race theory. And I just felt like that was such an odd, that's what we're focused on. Um, But I'm just wondering also like down the road, how, you know, there's been a lot of effort of the Southern Baptist convention to address racism in their past, um, or at least a lot of, Voicing of that desire. And I just don't know how that action correlates with uh, a sense of progress among Black uh, Southern Baptist churches and and members. So that's a
6: good question. Some of them have left over this issue that they thought that this was not where they need to focus and uh, were disappointed that the leaders are putting such an emphasis on it. And then the others are staying and trying to stay together. I covered a gathering of the Black Southern Baptist group uh, a year or two ago, National African-American Fellowship, and they were kind of imploring their number to stick with the denomination, despite the fact that this issue has cropped up and not gone away.
4: Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting, you know, the religion and how it intersects with life <laughs> and people, uh, that which is just the way it is. How have you all been seeing other dimensions of this upcoming 2024 joyful election season, which I'm sure will be life-giving and and uh, full of great ideas that people are you know parsing through and deciding which candidate. Um, is there anything right now that you see as a major telltale sign of what's to come in 2024 as we begin to enter into this um, with more gusto as we end out the fall and begin the next year?
3: Well, I'll I'll just note that, I mean, I think one of the interesting things to that I've been doing and kind of covering Christian nationalism is kind of seeing how there are certain issues that these smaller groups and smaller organizations that aren't attached to presidential campaigns are continuing to spend their time on, and how those end up bubbling up into the rhetoric of presidential candidates. So for instance, um, a lot of conversation around schools, a lot of conversation about LGBTQ rights, and also um, trans kids that are showing up in education contexts, in particular opposition from far right circles to a lot of what LGBTQ rights advocates would argue are LGBTQ equality um, efforts, um, and and really attaching that to education, attaching that to children. Um, you know what I was telling you earlier about the time uh, the, seeing DeSantis speak here in D.C. last week, he spent a lot of his speech on that same topic. And so those are often kind of like a window into like what it's going to look like to, um, to the end of the primary. Right now, how that manifests in the general election, we'll have to see. But it's certainly true that, you know, some of these smaller organizations like Turning Point USA, um, led by Charlie Kirk, and you know that have really kind of embedded in, uh, in themselves in Christian nationalism of late, they've kind of invested in it. A kind of faith outreach element where they are actively trying to recruit pastors to embrace this kind of political message from the pulpit. Um, those are all indicators of you know the kinds of people that say the Trump campaign or the DeSantis campaign could be talking to between now and whenever the GOP primary um, ends. And quite frankly, if it's either of those two candidates, I would expect them to continue pushing on those issues um, right up until election day, 2024. Um, so I, I just think that part's fascinating. Like Even earlier, you were talking about, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention, um, you know, Turning Point USA was hosting one of the events at this last one, right? Like, they, you know, they weren't, their efforts weren't necessarily successful to kind of push the message that they wanted, but that shows the level of interest that these polit- overtly political groups are showing in religious communities as a way to kind of push out a message that clearly seems to resonate with, gener- with Republican candidates writ large and potentially, um, you know, whoever ends up being the nominee. Yeah. Another
6: thing that might uh, come up, but I really don't know yet, but I'm intrigued as to this whole question about how Black history is looked at. And again, this is the DeSantis issue. And um, uh, Vice President Harris spoke to a, a women's convention of the African Methodist Episcopal Church over the summer. And she um, was uh, questioning DeSantis's, uh role on uh, having state standards that taught, about slavery in ways that seemed to her to be inappropriate somehow saying that there was some benefit for uh people who were enslaved um so uh that seems to not be going away as far as a concern um i don't really have a handle on how wide it is beyond florida but there are certainly issues about this that are drawing attention from folks and some of those folks are voters and so I don't know how high it'll be on the list of voting issues, but I suspect it'll be higher up on what are what's on people's minds when they walk into the, uh, the voting places this time around.
4: I think that those both of those issues, they you know, we think of the bread and butter issues know, economics and, and unemployment and things. But these are the issues that some people will come out for. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I, you know, we're, we're going to be doing a, a, uh, an event in October um, for our listeners, live stream uh, October 18th on, on book bands and really like what it means for people to say you can't know about um, these stories, about these people because it's going to, um, you know, that that's bad for your kids, like under the idea of parental rights and whose parental, whose parents, whose rights. And so this is, uh, this is a major, these are major issues um, that really do have a lot to do with religion and how, you know, what, what, what we can believe, what we can know, what, what, you know, knowing our history. I've, I've heard of churches in, um, in Florida, black churches that are beginning to teach black history because they don't Trust that, um, that actually the, uh, the school would be teaching black history uh, in a truthful way. Um, and, uh, and so these are all amazing stories. Listen, I love having you on. I love being able to say thank you for the storytelling you're doing and uh, that we see it and we appreciate it. You can go to religionnews.com, and this has been great. Adele M. Banks is projects editor and national reporter at Religion News Service. An award-winning journalist, she was previously religion reporter at the Orlando Sentinel and a reporter at the Providence Journal and newspapers in the upstate New York communities of Syracuse and Binghamton. Jack Jenkins is also an award-winning journalist and national reporter for Religion News Service. He's also the author of the book American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Thank you both for being with us again on State of Belief. Thanks Thanks so much for having us. That's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping State of Belief going. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com, that's stateofbelief.com. And you can be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part both on and off the air. And join the conversation, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week, I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.